That is a long story for another time. Okay. When we were all in person. All right, fair enough. Let's laugh about that then. Right. We'll wait another couple of years for that. So So Watchtower Weekly. Yeah. It's a big one this week. By week, whatever we're deciding to call this. <laughs> EasyJet has admitted that data of 9 million people were hacked. So they've said a, a highly sophisticated cyber attack has affected approximately 9 million customers. Uh, this has been reported by the BBC, among others. It said that email addresses, travel details, and that 2,208 customers had their credit card details accessed. This is an interesting one, solely because, like, there's n- 9 million pieces of information or or people's information has has been hacked only 2208 cards so if i'm gonna wildly speculate which you know i am (laughs) no one has said how this has been done yet so if there were only 2000 like obviously a lot of those 9 million people were included in this because they were either part of someone's travel itinerary or they purchased flights themselves so they obviously did use credit cards but only 2,208 were unencrypted. Like, why would they leave only 2,000 unencrypted unless this was some sort of combination with uh, something like Magecart? And it was it was scraping the information off the page. Out of 9 million people, 2,000 credit cards is, like, statistically insignificant. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, there's huge variants of, of how much information people have actually had stolen. So some people have had the kind of full whack, including their entire travel our itinerary and history and credit card details and passport information and all kinds. And then some people, it's just email and potentially passwords. Your entire travel itinerary. That's super scary. That's the last thing I would want leaked. Someone knowing exactly where I am. Yes, yeah. I mean, no one's flying anywhere right now, right? So. <laughs> yeah, airlines having a pretty bad time of it at the moment as it is, let alone having to have, like deal with a huge data breach. Gosh, that's so... Yeah, this is such an interesting one. I mean, it's bad. It's been a while since we've had a big one like this, and I look forward to in a year or so covering everything that happened, <laughs> like the deep doing the deep dive on this one. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so wait, EasyJet is a is a UK company, right? So are there fines or anything that's going to be imposed upon them? Uh, yeah, so they have to do things, right? So the the ICO they're investigating, and and they have steps that you have to follow as well. Um, so that there's things that they have to do, like notify everybody. But of course, you know, when you notify large sums of people like this, the truth is that a lot of people will just stick their head in the sand. The amount of information that's here, probably, you know, sums of money will be stolen from people through this information. So I think that probably going to get a hefty fine because the bad that comes with this information is, is, is quite large. People need to really keep a close eye on, on banking activity for, for any unusual transactions. I'm guessing any potential phishing attacks as well if they've got a lot of personal information. Not only that, but they have travel itineraries, right? Which yeah. I- if someone emailed you and said, hey, uh, click here for your refund for your EasyJet flight. Mm. Th- if they sent you an email saying that, you know, enter your credit card details and, and EasyJet will refund you the money here. Yeah. It's an easy one. That would be a very easy one to fall for, yeah. Yeah, this goes back to just criminals taking advantage of a global pandemic and picking on the things that people are already going to be looking out for, right? So one of the questions that I had reading through the details are, do we think that EasyJet handled this well? Just sort of on, just just from what we know so far. Well, it happened in January. Yeah. And it's now May. They were aware of it from January and they've only just kind of come out and said, 
you know, publicly that that they have started to notify people. Oh no! So why they were only able to notify everybody by twenty sixth of May, I don't know. But that doesn't seem to be great handling. And reading this register article here, I think the CEO has been sacked. So hang on, it's not Stelios. Hang on, is it? and key execs ended with company founder Stelios being outvoted by his shareholders. Oh yikes! So Stelios. He's out. Uh, so I don't know if, if either of you have heard, but uh, Facebook acquired Giphy, the GIF maker uh, Giphy, for $400 million. Wow. Yep. When it's that much money, you have to realize that they're not buying it for the actual GIFs. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, no. Like, <laughs> the actual worth of people's GIFs that they've created... Uh, it, it does not total to $400 million. What do people say? Data is the new oil? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is all about the data. Facebook is a data collection platform. It just is. I don't care what else you call it. It is there to aggregate data and to make money off that data. So if they're spending $400 million on Giphy, they think that there's four, at least $400 million worth of data there. And obviously much, much more. So... Uh, what is Facebook going to do with the data of 700 million Giphy users? Oh, well, they're, they're going to use it to make their adverts better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're going to start seeing animated GIFs for uh, mattresses and, and other things that you've shopped for recently. Because um, they have their own format, right? It's a GIF kind of plus some JavaScript-y stuff. When you post that on a network or in an app, they understand the frequency in, in which that's being posted. And it, it's basically like a, an advert tracker that comes along with a free meme. So yeah, I, I, I believe they're using this to basically, you know, provide a, an insight into the other apps and websites, like beyond its control. The more places that you post this, they understand more about ecosystems outside their own. Where you are. Yeah. Do you know what one of the major users of the the Giphy API is? Slack. Yes. It is a native integration to Slack, which means it's enabled by default. I can't believe that they're sending anything too bad in that respect, other than how many GIFs are used with Slack. (laughs) I was reading up on this a little bit last night, and apparently, according to people inside Slack, the integration is pretty vanilla. There's no like data being shared or sent or anything else. It's not like any information about the channels in which things are being posted is going to be harvested and sent back to Giphy. So it's probably fine. Like they were sort of the OGs of the Giphy API. So they, they've got it integrated pretty tightly in such a way that it doesn't share a lot of data and stuff. So th- there's not many times that I would prefer a decentralized option than a centralized one. You know, maybe coronavirus tracking aside but but a, a, an open source giphy would be really nice like where i could kind of take my own and you know filter out the trash really i only want office gifts yeah same so the next one the fbi cracked another iphone but it's still not happy with apple that's a, a, a brilliant headline uh, that got shared across a, a load of networks but nbc news are re- reporting this So after months claiming that Apple's uh, privacy protections had stalled its investigation, the Justice Department said that it had access to terrorism suspects iPhone uh, with no help from the company. So that there are, I I think, several cases where the FBI or other law officers uh, around the world have uh, asked Apple to unlock iPhones, right? And and it's kind of a standoff. And, and this kind of, you know, adds fuel to the fire for the encryption debate as well. Whether we should have encryption or not is, is what I'm going to call the encryption debate because backdoors are just another door. So this is obviously pushing at the fact that the FBI want an easier way to do this. 
but their current way of doing it seems to work, which is just brute forcing the pin. And because most of the time Apple offer a, what is it now, five digit, six digit code by default, it's, uh, yeah, better than four, what it used to be. They are balancing user experience by being able to sign in easily. People are saying that they're, they're balancing that with helping out by not adding like a 10 digit code or whatever. Yeah, it must be an interesting balance that, that Apple have, have kind of landed themselves with of, you know, they could go alphanumeric and default it to 10 characters and it would really mess up the, the FBI's current way of doing things. But Even if they went alphanumeric and kept it to six. Very true. It would increase the the time to guess astronomically. Yeah. But then you can't make it your birthday. <laughs> it's not supposed to be your birthday, Anna. <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh, no. Do you think they just stick it in a uh, a brute forcing thing? Or do you think they try a couple of times before? Oh, I'm sure they try a couple of times. Wouldn't you be that, that one guy who's just like, I wonder if it's his mother's maiden name in numeric form? Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know that Frank is walking to the coffee machine. He's got the suspect's phone in his hand. He's pouring some sludge. He's like, I'm just going to try a couple. We'll just see what, what happens here. One, two, three, four. Zero, 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 zero. Yeah, and then he yeah, and then he comes back in and he's like, "No, nah, I couldn't get it." And then they stick it in this robot, and it just goes bleep, bloop, blorp, <laughs> and it just pokes at the screen until it figures it but, out. Yeah, I think it's a it's an interesting balance that they have. Obviously, they could make it more secure, but it would go against one this and two user experience. And as much as I don't want to think that Apple is kind of erring on the side of let's leave it where it is for now, even though they can crack another iPhone. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting ecosystem, I think. So a woman has been stalked by a sandwich server uh, via her COVID-19 contact tracing information. A woman's trip to, to Subway fast food restaurant in Auckland, New Zealand, led to a restaurant worker reaching out to pester her on Facebook, Instagram, Messenger and via text. So this is via the Naked Security blog from Sophos. Jess told local news outlet, News Hub, that Subway required her to put in her contact details on a contact tracing form before placing her food order. She didn't think anything about it. The form asked for her name, uh, home address, email address and, and phone number, uh, all of which she put down. Uh, the Subway worker who took her order then used Dress's information to repeatedly and persistently contact her. I felt pretty gross, she said. Uh, he made me feel really uncomfortable. He's contacted me. I didn't ask him to do that. I'm lucky I live with quite a few people because, you know, if it was me by myself, uh, he knows my address, you know, I'd feel really creeped out, really scared. Uh, even now I feel a bit creeped out and vulnerable. Yes, that yes. that is the right thought because that's gross. This is why we don't use forms for this kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I did see um, Troy Hunt went to a restaurant the other day um, and I saw him tweet the picture of, of the contact tracing piece of paper that they gave him. Yeah. And it, and it was exactly that. It was um it was home address, name, phone number and email. Mm. And I think this is going to become more common. It, it's just hopefully these are a few kind of initial outliers because I mean what I'd really like to to think is that because we are all in this together and everybody is in the same boat having to give up their PII when they go and sit in a public place mm. because they might need to be identified later that hopefully like I said everybody's in the same boat you treat people's information with respect, hoping that yours gets treated also with respect. Yeah, I, I hate this a lot. I don't want to go to a restaurant now. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think we have to do something like this. The idea that they know when an outbreak happens and they know everybody's name and email address and phone number, etc. of who was there at that time is huge in, in tracing this, this thing. It absolutely is. I, I wish it wasn't a problem. But why couldn't you just use 
an app for your a contract tra- tracing app that's in your country. Not everyone has. Well, there's no standard for it. Yeah, it's just not as reliable. Yeah. You could have been walking past. You could have been sitting in the restaurant for an hour. Like there's like there's exchanging Bluetooth IDs. And then there's like the restaurant saying these people were here for the duration of this time. Uh, marking when you uh, enter and leave, basically. Yeah. I understand the need for this. I think this is a privacy nightmare. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Especially because it's paper and you're handing it to just some, you know, bloke behind the counter from Subway. Yeah, you don't know who they are. Who's going to start texting you and Facebooking you? Yeah. <sighs> oh, God. It's all right. I didn't like Subway anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Joining me on the show today is Eva Galperin. Eva is Director of Cybersecurity at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, or the EFF, and Technical Advisor for the Freedom of the Press Foundation. Day to day, Eva fights the good fight, protecting global privacy, advocating for free speech and providing security for vulnerable populations around the world, researching everything from nation-state hacking campaigns to stalkerware. So welcome Eva, how's it going? Hey there, it's going all right. So I'd like to start us off with stalkerware. Kind of what is it exactly? Who uses it and how do they operate? So stalkerware is the entire class of applications that uh, are advertised to purchasers as being for spying on your spouse or loved one's devices without them knowing. Uh, This can be their phone, this can be their tablet, it can be their computer. And the whole idea is that the application sits Uh, invisibly and silently on the device and sends information back, usually to a uh, command and control server, which is run by the company that is selling the software. The user then goes ahead and pays for a monthly subscription to a portal, which gives them access to the contents of the device. So I was watching a TED Talk that you hosted late last year, and it was really Interesting, especially the story of how you started your involvement with Stalkerware. Can you sort of tell us a little bit more about how it all kind of started for you? Sure. I started out working almost entirely in uh, nation state actors, APTs, not the high end. At the time, most people were really only interested in publishing information about APTs when they were especially sophisticated. So they were publishing stuff on Five Eyes, on Russia, on Israel. This was all considered to be very interesting. But what what I started to see when I was traveling around the world training uh, activists and journalists was that they were being targeted by governments that were considerably less sophisticated but whose efforts were still working. And often they were buying uh, software from companies that were based in Europe, uh, which was a place where we could actually pressure them. So I did a, a bunch of this work. And in late 2017, early 2018, it was discovered. Uh, it turned out that one of the partners with whom I had done the majority of my research was uh, revealed to be a serial rapist. And I got really mad. In early January, there was an interview with one of his uh, alleged victims. And the interview ran. And one of the most interesting things about the interview was how scared everybody was. 
not just the victims, but the friends of the victims, everybody coming out and, and speaking against him was really frightened. They all had tape over their cameras. They were all worried that he was going to hack them, that he was going to compromise their devices. And I got so angry and I didn't want anyone to ever be that scared again. So I, I did what most people do when they're really angry, uh, which was I tweeted. <laughs> and I tweeted that if you are a woman who has been sexually assaulted by a hacker and you are concerned about the integrity of your device, that you could contact me and I would make sure that you get a proper forensic analysis. And then I went to lunch. 10,000 retweets later, <laughs> I had accidentally started a very serious project. And I was getting anywhere between zero and a dozen messages and contacts a day from different people uh, telling me about the worst thing that had ever happened to me. Wow. Uh, which, let me tell you, is not great for your mental health. No. And by yours, I mean mine. Uh, so I spent about a year and a half just taking these calls, just helping people out and figuring out what, what their problem was. And I thought I understood what the problem was and I was wrong. And I should have known based on my experience working with, uh, with activists, with journalists, that the thing that engineers assume is the problem is almost never the problem. So nearly everybody who came to me was afraid of device compromise and nearly everyone who came to me was being targeted using account compromise. So we actually spent a lot of time talking about passwords. We spent a lot of time, <laughs> time talking about 2FA. And I was in some ways tremendously relieved because we have answers for people who have account compromise, uh, as you well know. But there were still cases that I saw that involved device compromise. And those were often the most violent cases, the most persistent cases, and the ones that were sometimes you know, linked to other really disturbing behavior. I had people tell me about you know, the kidnappings of their children. I had people tell me about ever escalating violence, about drug abuse. It was really, really harrowing and disturbing. Not to mention just all the kinds of harassment that come along with somebody who knows where you are all the time or what you're doing all the time, what kind of you know, communications you're having or where you might be fleeing to. It's extremely difficult for victims of this kind of software and of this kind of abuse to gain some control back over their lives and especially their digital lives. And the reason for this is that so much of our lives is online now. You carry a tracking device around in your pocket. You have a device with all of your pictures and your logins and your text messages and your end-to-end -end encrypted messages and all of your browsing history to the point where getting into somebody's phone is the next best thing to understanding the inside of their brain. You gain a very strong understanding of their thought process. And the victims are often very scared because they don't understand how they're being surveilled. They don't understand the shape of the surveillance, the limits of the surveillance. And when you don't understand the limits of surveillance, then it might as well be omnipresent and omnipotent. It is very difficult for them to create a bubble of privacy for themselves or a bubble of security for themselves that they can use in order to get out.
And often that is the most effective tool in the abuser's arsenal. Yeah, for sure. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not necessarily a corporation or the government that's stalking you. It's likely going to be somebody that you know, like an ex, a family member or a friend. So, you know, these kinds of people are people that are either going to know your password or be able to guess your password or the answer to your security question. Often, uh, one of the things that I, that I saw that security people really didn't expect was that part of the abuse is requiring access to the other person's accounts. Basically saying, if you don't do this, I will beat you. Or if you don't give me your password or you don't give me access to your accounts, clearly you do not love me. And because of that, we often assume as security people that physical access to the device plus the login plus the password equals legitimate access to the device. And that's simply not how the abuse case works. So what can technology and antivirus companies do to help the victims of stalkerware? Well, there are a couple of things that companies can do. The first is, even if you're not an antivirus company, when you are creating products, when you are making your, you know, your hardware gadgets and your platforms, you should be thinking about the domestic abuse use case. Think about what happens after a divorce. Think about what happens when the roommates move out. Think about what happens in an abusive relationship. And consider that when you're setting up your UI. So that having physical access to the device plus the username plus the login is not enough to compromise the device. So I would really like to see that. One of the ways in which I would really like to see a lot of uh, platforms change their uh, user interface to have some sort of centralized place where you can see all of the logins to your account and uh, you know what kind of device they're coming from. That is tremendously helpful, and that helps people understand when their uh, when their accounts are being compromised. And it's really powerful. And also, just not being reliant on security questions. Because again, these are people who know each other really well, and they will know the name of your first dog or your favorite teacher or the street you grew up on, which makes these, uh, these questions considerably less secure and they can be used to, uh, to reset accounts. As for antivirus companies, one of the reasons that I really targeted antivirus companies in my advocacy was that when I did some testing on stalkerware, I discovered that a whole lot of the stalkerware was not necessarily detected as malicious by antivirus companies. And I thought, well, this is weird because the whole reason behind installing antivirus on your device is precisely to understand when this kind of malicious software is on your machine. You would think. Yes. (laughs) But it turned out that detection was actually abysmally low. And uh, one of the reasons for this is that the companies were, had difficulty defining stalkerware. Sometimes the makers of stalkerware will simply reskin their design and market it as a way of tracking your children, which is considered for some strange reason to be benign. And one of the things that I did was I came to the antivirus companies and I brought them a definition. I said, if the app is behaving surreptitiously, If the purpose of the app is to make it look like it's not running on the device so that the user does not know it's there, then it is stalkerware. And it doesn't matter if it's, you know, track your child or track your spouse or track your cheating partner. There is no reason for this kind of software to be publicly available or in 
certainly not for it to be on somebody's machine and not labeled, you know, potentially concerning or malicious. Yeah, that's really scary. <laughs> are there signs that companies are actually starting to take stalkerware more seriously then? Yes. One of the things that I did was I helped to found an organization called the Coalition Against Stalkerware. It's very tricky. You may not know what we stand for. And uh, today, actually, we are announcing that the coalition is doubling in size. So I'm very excited about this. It's a group of academics and private companies, including security companies and antivirus vendors and researchers and people who work on the ground directly with victims, all working together to increase awareness, to make it easier to detect and remove stalkerware, sort of move the whole industry forward in this direction, and also doing outreach to uh, governments and law enforcement. Because frequently, even once you've found this stuff on your device, it can be really difficult to figure out what to do next because uh, it is not uncommon for victims to go to law enforcement uh, only to have law enforcement say, I have no idea what this is. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit and maybe this starts to kind of get into some of the other areas that you work with. So right now it kind of feels like we need to remind ourselves that data rights are human rights. How can we protect our own identity and privacy right now? Ah, well, <laughs> big question. <laughs> I assume you're mostly talking about you know, how, how to deal with COVID-19 and sort of the pandemic response. Yeah, this has been a really serious problem. We need digital rights more than ever because governments and law enforcement all over the world are trying to use this opportunity to grab as much data and as much power to collect data about their citizens and about people inside of their country as they possibly can. Whenever you have an emergency, you have a power grab. And they have the ultimate excuse. It is, you know, people are going to die. Uh, and people are, are very willing to give up their freedoms right now because the alternative is that lots of people die. What the role of EFF is right now <laughs> is to make sure that the proposals, especially the technical proposals that the governments are sort of coming up with, that these proposals are effective because often they're just security theater. Often this is just the mobile app equivalent of having to take off your shoes at the airport. And that means giving up a tremendous amount of freedom and a tremendous amount of privacy and potentially security for nothing. So we think that if people are going to give up privacy and security, that it needs to be done in a way that is transparent and in a way that's potentially effective enough to justify this sort of sacrifice. And nearly all of the proposals that we have seen have kind of fallen at this hurdle. We were spending a lot of time looking at various applications that are either being mandatory to install or voluntarily installed on people's devices that supposedly do contact tracing, which just fundamentally misunderstands what contract tracing is. Often these applications are insecure and the data that they are storing is often kept in insecure ways. Uh, so again, tremendously dangerous and the world needs security researchers now more than ever. Definitely, yeah. I don't know if you've heard the story recently. Um, we covered it on the podcast earlier, actually, about a woman who was stalked by a sandwich server at Subway in New Zealand via her COVID-19 contract tracing info. Oh, yes, I tweeted this. Yes. And it wasn't even digital. It was, uh, she, she wrote it down. On a, on a form and then he just got her information that way and it was just so easy. Yeah, scary. And often the people who are implementing these policies don't think about 
the abuse use case. They don't think about the young woman use case. They create policies for people like themselves. And uh, when the people creating policies are mostly, you know, middle-aged white men, you get middle-aged white men solutions that work for middle-aged white men and no one else. Yeah. And they kind of just standardized across the board. Absolutely. And people's experiences of the world are actually very different. Yeah. The kind of concerns that a middle-aged white man has handing over his name to, you know, the young sandwich maker at Subway are very different from the concerns that the young woman has. Yeah, for sure. So I'd also love to talk to you about freedom of speech uh, in 2020, which is something that's obviously come under a lot of fire recently. But what action can people take right now to protect it? Well, there's actually a lot of debate over freedom of speech right now. For one thing, it's popularly misunderstood. In the United States, we have a law called CDA 230, and it protects the people who are running platforms from being sued for most things that are said on their platforms. The idea being that if you are running a forum and somebody says something defamatory on the forum about somebody else, that you cannot be sued for defamation. If they violate copyright law, then all bets are off and and everyone starts looking at the DMCA. And this is because intellectual property is its own special snowflake, which is also a fight that EFF has fought for a very long time. But the chilling effect of making platforms liable for the things that people say on their platforms is that platforms will be much more trigger happy about taking down accounts, about censoring content or about not hosting that content in the first place. And that, we feel, really limits freedom of expression in a way that is very worrying. So there's been this sort of attack on CDA 230, uh, mostly trying to link it to harassment and abuse. But the thing is that under CDA 230, you can absolutely still sue the person who is harassing and abusing you. You just can't sue the platform. It's just one of those extremely frustrating points right now because CDA 230 is actually the the, the law that has made this sort of explosion of free speech possible. Having said that, there are a lot of people who are very critical of the explosion of free speech on the internet because it enables misinformation, because it enables harassment, because it enables information warfare and tracking through advertising and all kinds of other creepy things that that people are, are not into. And... EFF has spent a lot of time thinking about the balance of free speech and privacy and security. EFF is is a very old organization by American standards, which is to say uh, it was founded in 1990. We're as old as the web, but not as old as the internet. I know the difference. (laughs) And as an organization that has been looking at this problem for 30 years, we've seen a lot of the ways in which people have tried to deal with it and done it incorrectly. We've seen the the negative consequences. And that's really where I think people who are making policy can benefit from our legal and activist and technical advice. If there is a thing that could go wrong, we've seen it go wrong. (laughs) So finally, I think, are there any organizations that can help victims who have been stalked? Where can people go to find out more about you or EFF and the work that you're doing? Well, I would start with the Coalition Against Stalkerware because several of our members are organizations that do work directly with people on the ground. Uh, And that's everything from Operation Safe Escape in the United States 
to uh, Weissering in Germany, to the NNEDV, also in the United States. But we've just expanded to include organizations that work with people on the ground in places as far away as India and Uganda. This is a global issue and it requires a global response. Because if we just come up with a way to save the middle-class white women, uh, we're not saving everybody by a long shot. All right. I think it's time for the, the random act of kindness, which I'm, uh, I actually managed to send out someone's uh, swag this week. I, I've been putting it off because I, I didn't want to go to the post office. Wait, you went to the post office? No, no, no. I, I got them to come to my house in the end and, and I got, got like a courier service. You didn't get them. I got them to come oh. to my house. And I sorted it out for them to come to my house. So they, they turn up at my house and I have forgotten all about it. And I nearly gave them the jigsaw that Anna let us borrow. <laughs> I was like, why has Anna sent a courier for this jigsaw? It's very odd. That's a bit pushy. That's uh, extreme social distancing right there. So then I was like, oh, no, I remember. I've got to get the, the swag together. Oh, man. Yeah. That's fantastic. So this week, we're not going to give away actual swag. We're going to give away three years, one password for free to each of the winners. Are we? That's a so. lot. <laughs> we are. That's just discovering this. <laughs> Who authorized this expenditure? You signed this off. Did I? <laughs> I was having a generous morning. <laughs> all right, then. So shout out to all those who said everyone needs one password, every single person. So Yeah, we're not giving it to everybody for free, though. We can't give it to everyone, but uh, I agree with their sentiments. So. But we do have three winners. Uh, so this wonderful person said, I am a frontline health professional battling COVID-19 and would like to participate in this giveaway. Also, this would be the best birthday gift for me. Uh, and you know what? They're not wrong. So happy birthday. Yeah. Ha- happy birthday. Enjoy your, <laughs> your three years. And thank you for being on the front lines. Yeah. And we also have another ICU nurse in Ontario. This is Lily. She said she listened to your podcast since it started. Is it bad that I would love to get one password for free for three years? I try to spread the word of password managers to my colleagues and trying to do the same with my kids. And she's actually sent a picture of her in full PPE here and she's looking pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, so Jonathan said, my wife needs one password to stop her from having to run upstairs to get a notebook out of a filing cabinet in her home office and run back downstairs every time she needs to log into her Apple account. I think that's a, a very worthy cause. Yeah. I mean, it's good exercise. But... Oh, absolutely. That, that was my first thought was like, you know, a- actually, that's quite a good rhythm to get into. <laughs> but it does sound a bit of a pain. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so what's the what's the Ask One Password this week? So Cameron sent us an email to ask, have you guys heard of or used privacy.com or similar products? What are your thoughts on virtual credit cards and their effect on privacy? So I, I haven't used privacy.com because they won't allow accounts made in the UK. And there actually isn't an account that does this in the UK. But... I really like this. I think the Apple card does something similar, right? Like when you add, Mm -hmm. uh, or or in fact, any card that you add to Apple Wallet, I believe, actually creates a new number each time you use the card, but just never shows them to the end user. That's cool. I think this is brilliant. Not really for kind of, uh, well, I guess it's, it's privacy, but it's, it's more security in terms of uh, if details get leaked, like we spoke about earlier with the EasyJet data breach. It's not really privacy, it's it's more security that your details then are single use. I think this is great. I think we should see more of this. You know, what really is the the need to 
have a static address or, or static thing on the card anymore? Can we not just start making this this software based and change it up every use? Rue, do you use any of these products? I don't. I don't. But one of my favorite things about Apple Pay is the fact that like it's a randomly generated card number every time I use it. So uh, I have long wanted some of this, and I and I feel that this is something that every credit card provider should just offer. Yeah, finance and, and finance technology and banks, etc., they're, they're all quite slow moving. You know, having had experience and, and working for, for one of the biggest banks in the world. And so I, I think they're all thinking about this. They're all kind of, you know, appreciating this. And, you know, the, the fraud costs on banks are absolutely humongous. So if this method will actually stop that, I think, you know, they're absolutely planning and and things for this but you you have to think that a credit card from the very kind of experience of using a credit card is actually incredibly easy and accessible for all types of people and every person on the technology balance and privacy.com probably a very specific market even apple pay i imagine really it's a it's a small market at the moment compared to the actual physical credit card it's very easy to see this becoming the normal. Like I can absolutely see why the pickup on this is not massive. But I think as soon as American Express or, or someone like that starts offering this, it will become the normal. Yeah. Wow, this is neat. All right. Shall we move on to some real or not real? Okay. So May 29th is put a pillow on your fridge day. I mean, <laughs> Anna, why would you make up something like this? It's coming up. Still got time to celebrate. <laughs> I mean, this is this is something I've never thought about. That's the problem with this one compared to most real or not reals is I, I have an inkling of like, yeah, that seems, you know, like someone would have done that or, or, or that seems to, to relate. So you've never seen this trending on Twitter? Hashtag put a pillow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I'm guessing that this is not real and... Anna has issues that she's made up. <laughs> so you both think I made this up? Yes. I mean, I don't understand how you could, but yes, also you made this up. I did not make this up. <laughs> okay. You know what? This whole real or not real is nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> so what is pillow on your fridge? So this is actually a tradition that spans back to the early 1900s, before refrigerators, some Europeans and Americans practiced the tradition of once a year sticking their linens in the pantry or larder as a way of inviting wealth, prosperity, plentiful food, and good luck to the home. So this suspicion has been updated with the times, and now placing your pillow atop your fridge on May 29th is apparently the done thing to do. I mean, it's not. <laughs> It's an insane thing to do. You know, I can't confirm how many people actually do, do this. Do you think but... that this is the, you know, the card companies trying to make another holiday and uh, <laughs> they don't want to try and sell maybe pillows? Are they trying to sell pillows? Oh, it is a marketing ploy. Can you buy a pillow with a fridge on it to put on your it's fridge? It's like Valentine's Day all over again. Just monetize it. <laughs> this, is, this is very odd. Uh, do you think the first person who did this was just kind of like, wait, you don't do this? And then that kind of just sparked it all off. Maybe they were just, you know, trying to get some cold bedding. You know, it's a hot day. I am about as interested in this as I am bin day. It's the worst day of the week. <laughs> I guess we have to leave it there then. Love you, Rue. Love you, Rue. Love you guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.